Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. In Buddhist countries, we, some of the countries I've been in anyway, we don't say, they don't say Happy New Year. They say well-being in the New Year. So in Thailand they say, Sawati Pi Mai. In Cambodia it's Swastai Chnam Tmai. Swasti Sawati. It comes from the Sanskrit word uh, Swasti. And if that sounds familiar, it probably should, because it's where the word Swastika comes from. <clears throat> so you may have, some of you may have seen before the the swastika on, on the Buddha's forehead. I was in a museum once and a Jewish woman, uh, Eastern European, with a heavy Eastern European accent, came up to me. I was looking up at this large Buddha and I didn't even notice it, but she said, and she was quite concerned, she said, why is there a swastika on that Buddha's forehead? So notwithstanding the the Nazi German um, usage of the, the the symbol. What it really means, it's a it's an Indian symbol or it's an ancient symbol. And in India, it was called the swastika, and it means the bringer of swasti. Swasti meaning well-being. Swa means well. Asti is just a verb that means to be. So swasti is just be well. And I think that's uh, important as Buddhists or in the practice of Buddhism because it's a little different from happiness, right? It implies happiness. Well-being implies happiness, but it also implies strength when things aren't going so well. When you can't find happiness, you have the strength to deal with challenge and difficulty. Even though you might not be happy, you can be well. But deeper than that, it implies the, the cause of happiness and the cause of strength. It implies health. And this is important in Buddhism because our focus is much more on bringing about happiness than about enjoying happiness, right? They're two different things. It's like eating rice and, and growing rice. You, you, you do much better off if you're concerned with growing rice so you'll always have enough to eat. And that's kind of what mindfulness meditation is all about because it can be quite unpleasant, quite challenging. Mindfulness is an English word that comes from the Pali or Sanskrit. The Pali is sati. And if you know anything about these words, if you don't, it's okay. But if you do, sati means to remember. And um, why that's important, it means to... to um, Bring your mind back to the experience. And that can be quite unpleasant because it means facing uh, both positive and negative experiences. Many of our experiences are unpleasant to us, uncomfortable, challenging. Right? Our reaction to many things is to run away from them or try and fix them. In fact, our outlook generally in, in life, in the world, and that we're taught and that we learn is to fix things. We have problems and we want solutions. Many people come to Buddhism 
looking for a solution. And so generally speaking, Buddhism does have a sense of finding solutions, especially to you know, the general problem of suffering. But the practice of Buddhism is not about problems and solutions. It's about experiences and understanding. If you know anything about the Buddhist concept of wisdom and understanding, that's, that's the basis of well-being. There's a, a story about uh, an angel, a god of sorts, who came to see the Buddha. And he had been up in heaven, and I don't, I don't know how, how all of you feel about hearing stories about angels, but it's just a story. You can take, take what you will from it. The moral is more important. He was up in heaven enjoying life, and, and he was surrounded by a retinue of angels. And the way angels spend their time up in heaven is they, they, they dance and they sing and they, they um, pick flowers, apparently. So there were these flowering trees, and some of the angels were up in the trees picking flowers and throwing them down. Some of the angels were down on the ground catching the flowers, and they were all dancing. I mean, it's... It's kind of what you would think of, of, of heaven being just a, a blissful place. And one morning he went out and he looked up in the trees and there were no angels up in the trees. And he thought, where did these angels go? And he, he used his power of, of, you know, sort of heavenly power to see where they were. And half his angels had died and been born in, in, in hell, in, in a bad place. And he, he, he looked further and he realized, he looked inside himself and he realized that this was potentially going to happen to him. His lifespan was ending. And he realized it was because they had spent all their time just enjoying life and never really building up goodness. And so as a result, conversely, they had built up all sorts of greed and, and stinginess and addiction. Right? The problem with addiction is it can lead to great unhappiness, of course, right? And that's the trick with happiness. If you're focused too much on happiness, you become addicted to it. And then when you don't have it, of course, there's great anger and, and upset. And it was this anger, fear, disappointment, dissatisfaction that led these angels, their minds sent them away from heaven when they passed away. And so he went to see the Buddha. And I bring this up because this is the sort of the quintessential um, talk or story about well-being, swasti. Because he asked the Buddha, he said, I'm, I'm afraid. And the suffering that I have now and the suffering that I see in the future, I ask you, please tell me a way out of this. And the Buddha said, Nanyatra bhoja tapasa nanyatra indriya samvara nanyatra sabhanisaga sotim pasami paninam That's the Pali. A bhoja means uh, wisdom. So the Buddha said, apart from wisdom, tapasa means effort or uh, exertion. Apart from exertion, indriya samvara means controlling the senses. He said, apart from controlling the senses, uh, sabanisaga means letting go of everything, being free and not clinging. He said, I don't see, apart from these things, I don't see well-being for, for beings. And so our practice of mindfulness is about gaining this wisdom. 
we 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 our our focus is not on trying to change things but on understanding them now you hear a lot in buddhism about letting go and some people i think misunderstand this to to mean there has to be a practice of letting go you have to practice letting go and that's not actually how it how letting go comes about letting go is a result of understanding this is a um, a basic tenet of buddhism that you don't have to force yourself to let go because of, that, of course that's clinging when you're wanting to let go you're no longer letting go and so letting go and freedom it comes from understanding and from seeing things clearly as they are and this requires exertion this requires effort so meditation can be an effort and this is what i'm going to try to show you now i'm sorry for taking so much time talking but i want a little bit of background and also to wish you a happy new year but we'll st- i'll show you a way of of exerting yourself to see clearly it involves guarding the senses and this is a very basic buddhist concept that sort of ties in our engagement with the world with our uh, inner state of mind right it says you can't just go out and act you have to be a guardian you have to be vigilant simply you have to be present you can't say i'm going to be generous to other people and then just go and expect to be a good person goodness in buddhism of course is is based on the heart and the mind people can be generous and give lots of charity but with ego in their hearts right or, or wanting other people to see them do good or maybe even wanting some good result for themselves expecting something in return but when we have a vigilant mind or a present mind right? when what we do is connected with our inner state you know, everything we do is pure so what i'd like to show you is a means of cultivating mindfulness the capacity to be present and this is another very important concept in buddhism the idea of the present moment In Buddhism there are three times there's past, future, present and it's quite simple there's nothing revelatory about that but what I think is interesting and and essential in Buddhism is the idea that the present moment is different from the past and the future when you dwell in the past your state of mind is complicated it involves mental reification the creation or the cultivation the evoking of concepts memories same when you're in the future you create imagination and it's often not connected with what's actually going to happen in the past it can be unconnected from what actually happened but ultimately your state of mind is one that is complicated that is stressful stressful in a way not necessarily bad it's useful to think about the future and the past sometimes but in a way that the present moment isn't the state of mind of being in the present is simple and i'll show you that's what i'd like to to show you the practice i'd like to present to you when you're in the present moment you're dealing with something that presents itself to you you don't have to go looking for it or create it or conceive or try to remember or 
build it in your mind. It's here and now, it's with you. And so the Buddha likened it uh, to the difference between grass when you cut it and when it's still growing. Uh, he said he said that someone who dwells in the past and the future is like grass after you cut it, it dries up. It's disconnected from something essential, something um, nourishing, something that gives life. He said when someone's in the present moment, it's like grass that is still growing or, or plants or trees that are still growing. They're connected to something nourishing. In the present moment, the Buddha said, is that nourishing uh, source of life for the mind. So that's what I'd like to... I mean, I'm sure many of you have begun to practice Buddhist meditation, so it's not certainly something that you're unfamiliar with, but it's an important concept. And so the means by which we bring our minds to the present and remind ourselves and keep our minds with the experience, uh, we call mindfulness, but uh, more specifically is to remind ourselves. And so the practice that I teach is to use a word like a mantra almost, to focus your attention on the present experience. For example, if you feel pain, the word, the mantra that you'll use to remind yourself, to focus your attention here and now on what you're experiencing, is simply pain. Right? It's a simple mental procedure. You would just actually say to yourself, pain, pain. Pain. And that's a meditation that keeps your mind focused not on some concept and also not on how you feel about the pain, which can get you into trouble. You need to remove the pain. You feel upset and can't take the pain. As pain itself isn't the problem, the problem is that at certain times we're quite uh, upset or averse to the pain. And so if you can learn to just be with the pain and experience it just as pain, it's actually no longer a threat, no longer a problem. The same with thoughts. Thoughts are even more glaring, right? You ever think of something that just upsets you so much that you feel you, you, you do anything to not have to remember certain things or to not have to worry about certain things if you have a deadline or an exam or something? But if you can see them just as thoughts, even whether it's past or future, the thought is occurring in the present moment. And if your relationship with it is as a present experience, then it has no power, no, no strength. It has, it, it's nothing but a thought, no matter how often it comes. And so we do simply say to ourselves, thinking, thinking. And the same with emotions. Right? If you do get upset about something, if you have anger or desire, greed, uh, if you're worried, afraid, bored, depressed, anxious, all of these are problems. But if we can see them just as experiences, they don't cause us problems. Right? The problem isn't when you feel angry. It's not so nice to feel angry, but the problem is you get angry and, and, and you reify the anger, you augment it. You say, yeah, that person made me angry. And you 
build it up and build it up. Or when you're anxious and you get anxious about being anxious, or you remind yourself, oh, I'm so, so anxious, and, and you build yourself and you can actually have a full-fledged panic attack. This is how it comes. It snowballs into something unmanageable. But if you can experience it and, and create a relationship with it that is simply, it is what it is, you'll see you break the chain and you break that cycle of the feedback loop that makes it out of control. So I'd like to ask you all to try this. Maybe some of you have done it before, but if you haven't, I'll lead you through it. Close your eyes, please. Get in a comfortable meditative position. And I want to show you what it means to experience something just that it is, as it is. We start with a simple object, something that you're not likely to react to anyway, something that you're going to be easily able to just see as it is without judging it, without reacting to it. And so a simple object is, of course, the breath. This is why the breath is so useful. It's always there. It's a neutral object. It's something that you can easily begin to cultivate this capacity, this ability to see things objectively. So when you breathe in, you'll find that there's a, a movement in the stomach. Right, The rest of your body is, is still. And so to take the body as our object of meditation, we look for the one, we look for something that is moving. And the one really coarse and obvious movement is the stomach. When you breathe in, the stomach rises. When you breathe out, the stomach falls. If you can't feel it, you can put your hand on your stomach in the beginning to get a, a feeling for it. And when your stomach rises, just say to yourself, rising. And when it falls, say, falling. rising, falling.
As you're focusing on the stomach, of course, you'll find that your mind is easily distracted by other experiences. So another thing about mindfulness is we're not trying to ignore or avoid any experiences, right? The whole idea of confronting, facing, uh, experiencing objectively means we have to confront everything. And so again, with pain, if you feel pain, don't take it as a distraction or a, an obstacle to your practice. It absolutely isn't. Pain is something very important for us to learn about and understand, become familiar with, and be capable of experiencing without reacting. Right? It's our, our upset, our dislike of the pain that causes us suffering. So when you feel pain, just forget about the stomach and focus on the pain and say, pain, pain, pain. Trying to cultivate a, a neutral, and an equanimous relationship with the pain so that you no longer are tortured by it or under its power. It's quite powerful to be able to experience pain just as pain. The same, of course, goes for happy feelings or calm feelings. Because you can't be happy or even perhaps calm all the time. It can be quite distressing when you're not able to feel them, if you, if you hold on to the feelings. So when you feel happy, you should also not try to make it go away, of course. But try to be objective about it, equanimous about it, so you don't cling to it and get upset when it goes away. So when you're happy, also say to yourself, happy, happy. Or if you feel calm, say calm, calm. And just stay with the feeling until it goes away. Once it's gone, you can come back again to the stomach and continue with saying rising, falling. Just You're just training yourself. All of this is a training to be able to experience something objectively.
another distraction from our meditation is, of course, our thoughts. But the point of mindfulness meditation is not to stop thinking. It's to be a mindful, mindful and aware of your thoughts. And so whether you're thinking about the past or future, good thoughts, bad thoughts, doesn't matter. All of them are just thinking. So we just say to ourselves, thinking. When you're thinking of something, just remind yourself, thinking, thinking. Try and show yourself. Bring your mind to experience thoughts as thoughts. Not get caught up and carried away by the thoughts. Sometimes you don't catch the thought until after you've already spent quite a bit of time thinking, that's fine. This isn't magic where you have to catch everything. It's a tool. It's a, it's a practice. Whenever you catch something and you have the capacity to be mindful, just take that opportunity to remind yourself. That's thinking. And then just go back, bring yourself back to what you're doing, and in this case, what we're doing is breathing. So focus on the stomach again, rising, falling. Finally, of course, just to return back to our emotions. In Buddhism, we recognize that some emotions are a disturbance to the mind. And so they're an important basic object of meditation as well because 
they can they they have the capacity the, the potential to derail our practice these five are these hindrances there are five of them there liking disliking drowsiness distraction and doubt these are just simple words simple uh, names for them but really any any emotion you can be mindful of if you like something just say to yourself liking liking but if you want something say wanting wanting disliking if you are angry or frustrated or bored or sad or depressed afraid whatever the word is doesn't matter as long as it reminds you and keeps you with the object with the emotion say to yourself disliking disliking or bored bored sad sad depressed depressed afraid afraid see if they aren't objects of meditation they'll become hindrances They'll drag us down and drag us away and drag us into suffering. Why it's so unpleasant sitting still for so long isn't because of anything to do with sitting still. It's because our mind is incapable of being at peace, being clear, calm, capable of really being happy because we want things that we don't have, we don't like things that we do have or that we're experiencing and so on. If you're tired or if you're restless, these are two other dis other hindrances in our practice. You should focus on them, say tired, tired. If you're restless, say restless. Or if you're thinking a lot, you can say distracted, distracted. If you're worried, you can say, or if you're anxious, say worried, worried, or anxious, anxious. Anxiety is an interesting one because, like all of them, there's a physical and a mental component. But with anxiety especially, we tend to mistake the physical component with the actual anxiety. When you're anxious, you can just say anxious, anxious, and the anxiety will go away pretty quickly. But we're physically anxious. There's butterflies in the stomach. There's a pounding of the heart, headache, tension. And we mistake these for anxiety and get anxious again. They make us anxious. And so uh, it's important to be able to distinguish. Here we have anxiety, we'll say anxious. But here we also have tension, so we'll just say tense, tense. If we have some sort of feeling in the body, say feeling, feeling. If you have doubt or confusion, say doubting, doubting, confused, confused. Meditation gives rise to doubt often. It's generally something unfamiliar to a newcomer. You have doubt about whether you're doing it right. You maybe have doubt about the practice is, is this the right sort of thing for me to be doing? But both of these, and even confusion, can really be, they can become out of hand because they aren't necessarily proportionate 
to what you're actually doing. So uh, an example of how this is so, when you say to yourself, doubting, doubting, the doubt goes away, and you realize that you've, you've just solved both things, you've shown that there was no reason to doubt, but you've also um, solved the problem of doubt. When you say doubting, it goes away, but you also realize that the practice itself has no reason to doubt because it's very simple. Mindfulness is one activity that it's very hard to maintain doubt about because of how simple and how pure it is. How clear it gives you a relationship to the present moment. So with all of these and any other mental state, we, we take them as an object of meditation. When they're gone, we come back to something simple, usually the, the movements of the stomach, the abdomen, saying to yourself, rising, falling again.
There are other objects of mindfulness. You can be mindful of the senses, of course. As I said, guarding the senses is essential. What we've been doing mostly now is guarding the body, right? Being being with the body so that we don't um, get stressed out about it. But also, mostly the mind. The other senses are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. And those you can all be mindful of as well. Sometimes when you're sitting in meditation, you might see something. It can be quite distracting, even uh, frightening. Uh, it can lead you, it can mislead you. If you see something and you uh, get caught up in what you're seeing or, or begin to extrapolate on it, and so when you see something, try to focus on it as the object and say to yourself, seeing, seeing. Just like anything else, once it goes away, come back to the, the body, the, the stomach, or whatever. When you hear noise in the room, that can be an object of meditation. Some people are discouraged from doing meditation at home because they find it too distracting. You may be starting to understand that distraction isn't really a problem. This isn't the type of meditation where you have to focus on a specific single object. And so you can note hearing, hearing, and, and be just as just as well engaged in the cultivation of mindfulness by doing that. Okay, you can please open your eyes. That's an introduction to obviously one type of mindful meditation. two things about it. One is that it's very simple. Um, and I guess the other is just that it's not easy. Um, by being very simple, I highlight that because it's very concrete. And I think one problem in meditation is you're told often to be mindful. Or as I said earlier, it's sometimes practice letting go. And then you might be given an, an, an exercise that doesn't seem to be, uh, I mean, it, it, it's not directly connected to those two things. The practice of using a mantra might be foreign. Some of you might have practiced other types of meditation, but there's a concreteness to it. There's a very um, real, there's a very uh, concrete quality to to using a, a mantra, and it's an ancient technique. A mantra is something that's been used in many different religious and spiritual traditions. But it's so simple, you can teach it to children. And I have taught it to children. I have videos for children as well. And it's remarkable, of course, not surprising, but how easy it is for them to practice, because it's just about repeating a word. and. The connection, of course, is that you're reminding yourself, this is just pain, or this is just sadness, or, or fear, or whatever. You're evoking 
clarity and states which are really um, without clinging, without reaction. But it being not easy is, um, I highlight that because what you should be able to see is it's not something, it's not sufficient to simply understand what I'm saying and go do it. The understanding part is actually not so hard. It's a practice. And it's not something you, you are likely to be good at when you first start. Like any training, I mean, you can liken it, I often liken it to sports or even weightlifting perhaps because you're, you're exercising a muscle and a faculty or many faculties, mental faculties, confidence, effort, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, these are mental faculties that we all have, just like we all have muscles, but until you work them out, they can be quite weak, and, and they don't have the strength to allow us to, to use them as we would like. So it can be quite unpleasant again, quite, um, quite challenging. Uh, but it's something that is empowering because you no longer have to find ways to avoid, to deal with, to fix your problems. A big part of it is that the realization that there are no problems. The problem is you think it's a problem. And that is a real problem because that's where the stress and the suffering comes from. Once you stop looking at reality as problems and solutions and see it instead experiences and understanding, the understanding and the, the capacity or the faculty or the uh, perception, the outlook uh, that is based on understanding rather than fixing, right? That outlook, simply having, it's not so much, oh, I understand that, or I understand that. It's a, the, the, the quality of, of being an understanding sort of person. Uh, suddenly you don't have problems anymore. Pain isn't a problem. Thoughts aren't a problem. Experiences, people aren't problems. Someone's yelling at you, it's a hearing, hearing. Even your emotions aren't problems because you can face them. And rather than react to them and build on them, you simply be with them. Let them come, let them go. And so this is how we, how I would say, you develop these four qualities that the Buddha said lead to well-being. Wisdom, effort, Guarding the senses and letting go of everything, or being uh, not clinging to anything, as the Buddha said, are the four means of finding well-being. It's a common uh, sort of teaching to give on the new year, and I understood that this is the new year, the first meeting of the new year. So I thought that would be a good frame to give you the meditation, and so I wish you all well-being in the new year. We have not so much time left, but I welcome your questions, comments, complaints, anything.
except for the complaint that I'm too quiet, which I know already and I apologize for in advance. Questions? Yes, sir. Do you think that all suffering and all negative emotions are problems? So again, I think that Buddhism is not about seeing things as problems. It's about understanding. In fact, it's a good place to point out that do you know what the first noble truth is? Are you familiar with Buddhism? The first noble truth. No. No, absolutely not. The Buddha never said that all life is either suffering or dukkha. I challenge anyone to find a place where the Buddha said all life is, is X, really, but especially suffering or dukkha. No, the first noble truth is there is suffering. In fact, you could maybe just say suffering is the first noble truth. But the four noble truths, for those of you who are familiar with them, are not simply an expression of the truth. Now that's the core of it. This is the first noble truth, this is the second, that's, that's the core of it. But the Buddha said he wasn't enlightened until he realized what, was, what needed to be done in regards to the four noble truths. Do you know what needs to be done in regards to suffering? Mm. I'm going to say no because there's something. There's a very specific answer. It's not. You're you're, you're kind of right, and I think generally speaking, that's a good point. But no, the Buddha actually gave specific, and this is what a lot of people don't know about the Four Noble Truths. When you hear that's the core of Buddhism, you should also know what did the Buddha say right after he taught the First Noble Truth, right after he taught the Second, about what you should do about each of them. The Buddha said, "Do you know?" No, I mean, these are all good answers. They're not the answer. Does anyone know? Are there any Sri Lankans here? <laughs> Sometimes they're really... It's all right? No, no, I mean, good answer, but... No, no, I'll, I'll put you out of your misery. The, the, um, the right answer, and they're, they're good answers, I, so I'm not... I'm just teasing. But the, the right answer is parinyaya. Uh, Parinyaya means to understand or to know, simply know fully. So that's, I think, a roundabout way of answering your question. No, suffering is something to be understood fully. Right. And, and really everything that we experience is to be understood fully. Because when you understand it, when you have understanding, as I said, it's not a problem. But what that means technically is there's no desire for it, right? There's no attachment to it, and so there's no suffering because of it. Desire is based on, or let's say clinging, thirst, tanha, the second noble truth, where we attach to things, is based on habit. It's based on um, ignorance, really. It, it's based on, or it's only, it's only uh, potent when there's a lack of clarity. When, when you have this state of clarity, there's no room for anything. There's no room for liking or disliking. There's no room for stress or suffering. The mind is simply present, content. I think contentment is a good adjective, good description. So, well, simply no, I don't think problem is the right way to look at suffering.
Yes. What are your thoughts on fear, particularly fear of success or fear of failure? Well, I don't know there's anything particular about fear of success or failure. Fear of success is interesting. You're afraid of actually succeeding? That's a new one. That's probably uncommon, but maybe it maybe it's a thing. Anyway, fear of failure for sure. Um, fear is, you know, technically it's based on an aversion. There's aversion involved, but it doesn't. That doesn't. That's not the most important. Fear is fear. And again, philosophically, you could say it's a problem. I mean, we all know practically speaking, fear is a problem, but. The perspective of looking at it as a problem is problematic. I mean, it's what, what allows it to grow. It, it feeds off of our, our uh, reactions. So the mindful way of looking at it would be to say, afraid, afraid, or simply fear, fear. And I guarantee if you do that, if you get good at this, 100% money-back guarantee. I'm not being paid to be here. I, I, I'm, I, this isn't... Um, but, yeah, uh, it works. Absolutely, fear is no longer a problem. Anxiety, all these things. Someone, go ahead. I have something to say on that. Okay. Um, I think maybe the fear of success, because that is like an odd concept. Hmm. It's more of like the fear of like losing the things you're attached to as a result of success, so that hmm. you don't have to attach to them. Hmm. But I have another question also. So, mentioned guarding the five senses and I don't know that I kind of fairly understand what that meditation practice was Okay, well I try yeah, good question, I'm glad that it was brought up, so um, I understand that to be what I was teaching and how that is, is because it's not so much guarding as it is well, I mean, it's how you think of a guard. Most of the time, guards are bored, right? It's not about um, any kind of fear or, or or anticipation. It's about being the guard at the door, so that what comes through the door is not a problem. It's not uh, an enemy, right? And so, when you see something, see, it's not like you're you're stopping the sight from coming in. But when you say to yourself, seeing, seeing. You, you you filter in a sense. I mean, the, the Buddha used the word guard, and it's a very common sort of analogy of a guard making sure the enemies don't come in. But it's really filtering, so or purifying or maintaining purity with seeing is just seeing, because seeing isn't a problem. Yet so many of the things we see cause us great suffering because we get stressed because we react to them. We allow the enemies in. That's the analogy. So what what I taught you just now, another thing about it is it's it's quite portable. So in your daily life, absolutely. When you're afraid, you can say afraid. When you see something and you know, especially you know it's going to be something that you're afraid of or, or react to, just say seeing, seeing. Again, when someone's yelling at you, say hearing, hearing. I mean, if you get good at this on the mat, you can actually absolutely use it uh, off the mat in your life. In the back there. Him. No, that guy first. I think. What are the second, third, and fourth noble truths? 
the Buddha's responses to them and how they relate to the practice. In four minutes. So the second noble truth, in fact, the first noble truth is the most important. Once you understand suffering completely, the other three are activated. You, when you see suffering clearly, the clear seeing takes away any kind of desire to change it, need to change it, anything. So the desire for any of the three kinds of desire is gone. Uh, and so suffering ceases. That's the third noble truth. I mean, it's a long process, but throughout you're freeing yourself from suffering. But at the very end, the mind actually completely, clearly understands nothing is worth clinging to and it lets go and there's Nibbana, which is the real, ultimate freedom from suffering. It's just, it can be just momentary, but in that moment you've let go and, and there's freedom. And the path, the fourth one, is just describing how you do it. So the fourth is like what you do to see suffering clearly. And so what I was describing, the meditation I was describing, is one way of cultivating the fourth one. That's simply put. Uh, to obtain pleasant and understand suffering, is it the individual suffering? Is it the suffering of the world? It's individual. I don't think you can free someone else from suffering. I think that's a very sort of core Buddhist concept. Everyone has to do it for themselves. The Buddha can't free you from suffering. Praying to him isn't going to end your suffering. Well, praying to him, respecting him and so on might because it's very, it's a very good, wholesome quality. It makes you a better person to be respectful and humble and so on. But that's the only. It's absolutely your own suffering. I mean, it doesn't mean that you don't help others, but in the same way, helping others is very good for you. It's a very wholesome thing and it alleviates your suffering to be kind to others. It's an important part of alleviating our own suffering is to be kind to others, to be generous and patient and so on.